We're in a new series uh, called Nameless, and we're going to spend a couple weeks looking at some anonymous characters in the Bible, characters in the Bible that uh, we don't get to know their names. And as I began reflecting on some of these stories, including the one that we're looking at today, is, um, you know, characters don't end up with names for a variety of reasons. In fact, stories remain anonymous for a variety of reasons. I don't know if you thought about this. Some stories aren't told, or if they're told, they remain anonymous because they're really sensitive. You know, um, I don't want you to know that I'm experiencing this. So sometimes we don't, we, if we share a story or if it gets out there, it's anonymous because I don't want you to know that I'm going through this and this is really vulnerable for me. And so I, I got to be careful who I tell this story to. But then other stories remain anonymous, not because I'm unwilling to share, but because I'm, uh, people are unwilling to listen. Some stories are anonymous because I don't want to hear that story. I'm not interested in that story. I'd rather not us talk about that. Well, welcome to church, everyone. We're going to talk about one of those things today that maybe you're like, you know what, I wish, I wish, I, I wish we wouldn't have talked about that. Well, actually, I think you'll find that you're glad, you'll be glad that we talked about it, but it is something that we don't talk about very much. Um, to do that, we're going to look at a passage in 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4, the verses will be on the screen, and uh, we're going to walk through this. And um, the context is pretty simple. You have uh, kings ruling Israel, and you've got prophets interacting with those kings. And Elisha has uh, recently inherited the role of prophet from his uh, mentor, Elijah. And you have a series of stories. They're really profound stories. We're going to look at one of them today. We might look at others because they're all uh, anonymous stories. But they're really interesting stories in chapter 4 because they have to do with these um, uh, events that are really similar to the Gospels. This is one of the things that I love about the Old Testament is where you see how the New Testament and the Old Testament connects. And when you look at these stories, you're like, oh my gosh, that's the same type of thing Jesus did when he was walking on earth. And this is one of those stories that we're going to look at today. There's others very similar to gospel stories. And the whole point of it, and we're not going to spend time today talking about that, but the whole point of it is that uh, the person of Jesus um, identified as a prophet, that Jesus was this prophet very similar to Elijah and Elisha. So you have these stories that, are, that feel um, like the gospel's stories. And so 2 Kings 4, 1 through 7 is one of those stories that starts like this. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha. Elisha's the prophet, and there is a man who was a part of his uh, group, part of his friend group, part of his prophet group. He was a member of the, you know, he was one of his disciples maybe, is the way you could say it, but he was part of this group of prophets. And the wife of this man cries out, Your servant, my husband, is dead. Her husband died. That's where this story begins. And you know that he revered the Lord. My husband's dead, and he spent his whole life serving God. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. This wife's husband had somehow gotten into debt, couldn't pay off the debt, and here's what the law said at the time. If you can't pay off the debt, it goes to your family. And so your kids now belong to me. How many parents are in the room? Don't like this story. Those kids are mine now. They're going to work it off. That's how the story goes. Um, And that's even what the law said. What we call 
bonded labor. Here's one of the ways that I was taught to preach. Um, so I'll pull back the curtain a little bit. Um, you might find it interesting or helpful, but it's what we're doing today. Um, uh, it's, it's called Four Pages, and I forget the author, but you can Google it. And um, it's basically, you look at a text and you say, okay, what's, what's the problem in the text? And then you reflect, how does that problem still exist today, the problem in our world? And then you look at the text and say, well, what's God doing about that problem in the text? And then you ask the question, well, how is God acting in the world today? So that, that's what we're going to do today. So here's the problem in the text. This woman's going to lose her children as slaves, as bonded labor to pay off a debt. That's the problem in the text. So then I have to ask the question immediately because of my training. I ask the question, well, does that still happen today? Now, do you guys know the answer? Yes. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about how it happens in other countries. And that's usually how we talk about this um, uh, because it's a little more comfortable for us. Uh, doesn't happen in America. Well, because of that, I'm going to talk about how it has happened and continues to happen in America first. Here's the thing about bonded labor. Here's the problem in our world. It is a significant part of American history. Um, after the emancipation, when slaves, um, predominantly black slaves, were set free, bonded labor became the way in which they could continue to enslave people. Um, very dramatically. Do we have that video? So queued up, not yet, I'll, I'll let you know. Um, PBS did a doc documentary called uh, Slavery by Another Name. We're not going to watch it. It's an hour and a half. You can check it out on PBS. But um, there is a promo for it that just tells a little bit of this story. Um, so let's play that now. Buried in old courthouses, abandoned jails, libraries, and archives all across the South, are tens of thousands of public documents and letters written by African-Americans at the turn of the last century. Mr. President, I have a brother about 14 years old. A man hired him for me and I heard of him no more. He went and sold him to McGree and they've been working him in prison for 12 months. He's done nothing wrong for them to keep him in chains. Written more than 40 years after the Emancipation Proclamation, these letters bear witness to a sinister and little-known chapter in American history. Whenever one is in a conversation where someone says, what's wrong with black people? Why can't they get over it? Slavery ended 150 years ago. That's fundamentally false. The reality is that slavery and all of the, the limitations that it imposed on the future and the potential and the progress of African-American families, it didn't end 150 years ago. It continued until World War II, well into the lives of large numbers of African-Americans today. For more than 80 years following the Civil War, hundreds of thousands of African-Americans in the South were pulled back into the shadow of slavery. Buying and selling African-Americans ended with the 13th Amendment, but that did not translate into actual freedom. One of the fascinating things about the text of that amendment is that it says that slavery is abolished, except in the case of a punishment for a crime. With emancipation, the nature of both crime and punishment in the South changed dramatically. In state after state, county after county, 
Laws were passed to criminalize black life. It was a crime in the South for a farm worker to walk beside a railroad. It was a crime in the South to speak loudly in the company of white women. It was a crime to sell the products of your farm after dark. But the most damaging of all of these laws were the vagrancy statute. In every Southern state, you became a criminal if you could not prove at any given moment that you were employed. Once arrested, convicts released and forced to labor in coal mines, lumber camps, brick factories, and turpentine farms. They were shackled, imprisoned, and tortured, sometimes to the point of death. The fact that blacks were treated the way they were, like animals. People could be just picked up and put in jail. They could be lost in the system. Nobody knew where to find them. They could be buried in some grave somewhere and families still looking for them. Don't know where they are. I didn't know that the sheriff department could sell slaves to corporations, steel plants, and coal mines. The constant threat of arrest and forced labor, like the threat of lynching, cast a shadow over the South. Slavery had ended, but true freedom had not begun. promo for a much longer documentary, and, and I'm going to be honest with you, there's a lot of conversation in our world right now around what should be taught in schools, if you're familiar with that conversation, but I'm here to tell you that I don't ever remember hearing about the Vagrancy Act of 1866, where in a variety of southern states, um, I'm assuming other people had learned this, you all are more educated than me, but I hadn't learned this, that it was illegal to not have a job. Now, I want you to imagine the context. Emancipation has just happened. An entire population, thousands of slaves have been set free. They're wandering, trying to figure out how to make a life for themselves, finding displaced family. And if you couldn't prove that you had a job, you could be forced to work, employed, so you were paid, for three months. That's how the, the law kind of worked. Um, and then if you ran away from that forced employment and captured, you could then be forced to work in chains without pay for the full three months. So this, this, is, this is a part of an American history that I obviously was not privy to and is very significant as we talk about um, what it means for bonded labor. Now, today, you may, okay, well, that was back then. So we don't have the problem anymore. Well, actually, uh, according to the Department of Homeland Security, bonded labor is still a prevalent issue in America. And they list some of the risk factors for people who are impacted by bonded labor. Now, bonded labor, once again, is where force or coercion are used to force someone to work against their, their will. That's what we're talking about. That's what's happening in this biblical story. Can we put up the list? This is from the Department of Homeland Security of what they say are some of the, the modern risk factors for bonded labor. Um, unstable immigration status. Throughout America, Unstable immigration status often translates to some form of bonded labor, forced labor. Um, language barriers it makes it easier for, for people in power to manipulate, in pe manipulate people into this type of situation. Poverty, lack of basic needs like food, shelter, and safety. It's amazing what you'll do if you lack those. It's amazing what you'll sign onto if you lack those. People can get very desperate. Uh, you, we would get, I would get very desperate. 
The psychological effects of a recent or post-trauma, so post-traumatic stress disorder often can be easily manipulated as well. Lack of social support systems like friends, family, and community. Anytime you're talking about somebody who is isolated, it's easier to take advantage of them. And then physical or developmental disabilities. If somebody has cognitive or otherwise physical disabilities, it's easy for you to take advantage of it. So these are some of the modern risk factors that are still at play in the world, in, in the United States. And around the world, it's similar. Um, bonded labor is a very significant problem um, in countries like uh, India, Pakistan, and a variety of others. Um, to give you, and, and, and it impacts us on a very personal level. So we're gonna do a little exercise. I, maybe you're familiar with this website, maybe you're not. Um, I find it to be um, interesting and challenging. Um, but it's called slaveryfootprint.org, slaveryfootprint.org. And um, I've got it here, and what it does is it tells us, it shows us the ways in which we're engaging in some of the supply lines that engage in forced labor. So I'm going to see if we can share my screen here. You guys can see what I'm looking at on my, on my tablet here. All right, so this is slaveryfootprint.com. It's gonna be a little small on your screen, but I'll zoom in as you can. Um, I'm gonna start with my city, but I'm gonna read some of these stats for you so uh, we, as we go along this journey, you can learn some things. There are at least 27 million slaves worldwide. That's roughly the combined population of Australia and New Zealand. It's a lot. So I'll put in my city here, Columbus. So there we are, and hit next. All right, so I went through this earlier, so my answers are probably hopefully gonna pop up, which will save us some time. I gotta give my gender and my age. Now you guys know how old I am. Turned 37 in June, feel like I'm almost 40. So that's good news. Um, here's what it says uh, um, uh, uh, regarding age. Many Pakistani boys are signed away to bonded labor at the age of 13. The contracts last uh, until, they are th until they are 30. If those boys were released today, they would have begun their work when O.J. Simpson drove his white SUV down a freeway, Bill Clinton gave his first State of the Union, and Justin Bieber was born. Just to give you context. They were released today. That's how long they've been in forced labor. Going on, I'm going to put in how many children I have. I've got one uh, child, and you can go and you can put all the things that that child owns, action figures and whatnot. Like I said, I did this earlier. Here's another stat. In 2007, Save the Children reported that 250,000 children live and work in Pakistani brick kilns in complete social isolation. That's more than the population of Irvine, California, Baton Rouge, and Orlando. All right, I've got one child who owns a, way more toys than he should. So it says fine-tune that. I'm going to go and say I already did. What's under your roof? Here's a, my house, you can drag and drop if you can see that. You can drag and drop, you know, like how many bedrooms and bathrooms you have. It takes all of this into account as it kind of looks at your slavery footprint. So here's what we see. Um, in regards to uh, carpet, more than 200,000 children are forced to work in India's carpet belt of Uttar Pradesh. That makes it a pretty large operation considering Honda, Sony, Procter & Gamble, and Boeing each have fewer employees. Where do you get your carpets from? Something to think about. Going on. 
What's on your plate? You can set the percentage there of your fruits, your fish, your dairy, eggs, your meat, poultry. Um, I, I kind of set mine there. I, I, I'm on the iPad. I can't change it. I should change it from a medium. I don't know if you guys can see that from a medium appetite to a large one. But uh, um, the iPad does have some limitations. But here's what we see. Uh, shrimp cocktail, anyone? Bonded labor is used for, so, for much of Southeast Asia's shrimping industry, which supplies more shrimp to the US than any other country. Laborers work up to 20-hour days to peel 40 pounds of shrimp. Those who attempt to escape are under a constant threat of violence or sexual assault. Going on. Let's peek at your medicine cabinet. You can select the various things in your medicine cabinet. Um, I went uh, with what, what was standard, because um, just to give us an idea. Uh, how, does this, how do I look in this dirt? Every day, tens of thousands of American women buy makeup. Every day, tens of thousands of Indian children mine mica, which is the little sparkles in that makeup. You feel like you're in a dystopian movie now? A little bit? Yeah. Going on. How much jewelry do you own? None. Going on. You, you might answer that differently. I don't, I don't know. Um, I put that I'm a gadget geek. Uh, I own way more technology. I've got all the Apple products. I use all of them to their full capacity. I'm proud of this fact, and I'm not proud of uh, what happens in order for them to be made. Colton is an effective capacitor found in electronics. A US State Department official was interviewed about Colton mining in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Great uh, TV series, fictional, but based on reality, called Black Earth Rising, deals with this very issue, uh, as well as uh, other things, if you're into Netflix shows. But um, the Democratic Republic of Congo, he pointed to the reporter's smartphone and said, the likelihood that one of these was not touched by a slave is pretty low. So using my iPad, I'll go to the next one. Sports do you do? I watch soccer. In China, soccer ball manufacturers will work up to 21 hours a day for a month straight. Even the toughest American coaches wouldn't ask that from their squads. Something to think about. What's in your closet? Um, clothes. But not, not, not as many as they, they standardize, so we'll go on. How many times have you paid for sex? Answer this question here. Okay, we're not going to make you answer this one, but here are some of the facts. Oh, iPad, come on. But here, are, but here are some of the facts you should know. The sex industry relies heavily on force, fraud, and coercion, whether in massage parlors, brothels, brothels, or the streets. Prostituted persons are regularly subjected to violence and denied the money they bring in. If you participate in these activities, you are contributing to the demand that fuels sex trafficking, making your slavery footprint inestimably bigger. Next. So according to this very generic survey, right, it's just taking big numbers and compiling them, I have 39 slaves working for me. Let's be honest, one is too many. We are on a, they go on to say we're on a mission to help every consumer organization and business buy better by purchasing from companies who share the value of freedom. You can take this off.
it's a part of our past. It's a part of the world economy. There's a documentary called Bonded. It's a short film that you can find on YouTube that talks about uh, some of the stories. I was going to show a clip, but for sake of time, we won't today. Um, uh, some work that was happening in India. And it's a part of many of our purchases. So we look at the scripture text, and we see the story of this woman who says, I'm going to lose my child into bonded labor. That's the problem in the text. And then you look at our world, and you're like, okay, this is, um, this is a still a problem in our world. So what I want to do is I want to go back to the text, because here's the thing. Elisha's a prophet. And Elisha actually responds to this in a way that teaches us some very basic principles on how to respond to injustice in general, how to respond to when people are being taken advantage of. It should inform our work at Little Bottoms Free Store. It should inform your work as you interact with people from a variety of places. Here's how Elisha responds to the problem in his time, and you know maybe it'll teach something in how we respond to what is still very much a problem. Verse 2, Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? What a great first question. That's where we start, friends. I've shared the problem very briefly. First response is, what can I do to help? And if that's not your first response, it needs to be. What can I do to help? This is a problem. What can I do to help? Tell me. And he says, tell me, what do you have in your house? And she says, your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. I love this, because first, he wants to help. But second, he starts with what she has already. For, this is um, called by many people smarter than me, uh, sort of an asset-based response. So many times when people who have means want to help those who don't have means, we think of what we have to offer them. Um, we're guilty of this even sometimes, and we, we, we struggle with this in our work with Little Bottoms Free Store, because there are people who have means, and we want to give it to those who don't. And so we start with what we have to offer, and I'm, look what I, I can give, and I can provide, and I can help you fix your problems. And friends, that's good intentions, but what we've found often is that's not always very helpful in the long haul. There's, I can't get into it, but there's great books. One of the most famous ones written a while ago that I think is still relevant is called When Helping Hurts. Um, I, I, uh, it's a great book, and it talks about this very principle. But Elisha gets it through the Spirit or just because of his wisdom, and he says, well, what do you have? What do you have to start with? She's like, I got nothing. And he's like, well, you know, like, well, no, but what do you have? And she says, well, all I have is a small jar of olive oil. That's all I've got to offer. So verse 3, Elisha says, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. So, so the first thing he says, tell me what you've got. We'll start with that. And then second, go rally up your neighbors. What do your neighbors have? I mean, it's just like this could be a textbook for asset-based community development. I mean, it, this, is a, this is basically what some of these scholars who probably have PhDs, someone probably thought they came up with the idea a few years ago, whatever, like Elisha's doing this. He says, tell me what you've got, we'll start there, and then go find out what your neighbors have, and let's pull all of those resources together. And out of the little bit that you have to offer, that's what we'll start with. Next verse, he goes, 
She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons, and they brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. And when all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. And he replied, there is not a jar left. And that's when the oil stopped flowing. So this is the story. It's a, it's a very common story in Scripture. It's, it's, it's similar to the loaves and the fishes in the gospel narrative. You take, you know, and we talk about the gospel narrative, how, God, how Jesus fed 5,000 or how he fed 4,000 in different stories. Well, we sometimes forget that Jesus intentionally started with what they had. And it was when they offered what they had and brought people together around that, then God made it into a miracle. So this is a very simple principle in the Christian faith. We bring what we have, then the miracle happens. We bring what we have, and then the miracle happens. The miracle happens in the context of community. Now, here's why I say this. This how many of you, when I was walking through all those statistics and I was reading them and I was checking them off, felt a little overwhelmed by the problem? That's me. Anyone feel overwhelmed by the problem? Yeah. Here's a principle for when you feel terribly overwhelmed by a complex problem in this world. And human trafficking is not the only one. Racism, I mean, we could go on. There's a lot of deeply complex problems. And one, a really good principle in response to complex problems is this. What do you have to offer the problem? And will you trust God to do something with it? You're like, well, all I got is a jar of oil. What good is that going to do? No, no, no. I'm not asking whether you have a lot to offer. I'm asking, do you have something to offer? Is there a small thing that you can do? And do you trust in faith that God will take that small thing and make something big out of it? That's the story. That's how we respond to extremely complex problems. It's a lot of the work that we've been doing with Robert Caldwell around racism. racism and as he works with our leaders, it's like we want to just fix this overnight, but we can't. We have, to, we have to engage and we just have to show up and bring ourselves and do a little bit at a time and take the next step towards making it. Verse 7, she goes on. She went and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. And this is what I love about this model, is he didn't just deal with the, the immediate problem, he dealt with the underlying issue, right? And this is why this approach is so important. Because not only were they able to pay off their debts, but she had stuff to live on. Did you catch that? So now she's less likely to get in debt again and put her children at risk again. I was watching this video on, on, on bonded uh, labor, the one I mentioned called Bonded, and um, they went into a village in India and they freed everyone um, by just enacting the magistrate, writing ordinances saying you, you don't have to work for this company anymore. And they were all free. And it was like this beautiful moment, you can watch it, that a couple of the people were break down and cry. I found this really compelling in light of the scripture, though. I went, I was watching it, and then in the next scene, they come back like a month later, and they ask people, like, hey, what's it like to be, you know, to be free? And their response was, was like, well, like, we don't know where to work. Like, we don't have anywhere else to work. They're the only employer, and I'm just afraid we're going to end up working for them again because we're running out of food, and we don't have enough. And I think when they, it was really interesting because when they asked the question, I think they were looking for, like, a puff piece, like a happy story. But it was actually more complicated than that. And it's always more complicated than that. But what I love about this story is he, because of the miraculous power of God, is able to not only set them free, but help them have something to live on. So what does that mean for us? What does it look like for us? Um, there's a variety of ways in which you can respond 
And they can be small steps. They can be just a small jar of oil, and, and we can step in faith and trust that God is going to do something with it. Um, and that's what I'm going to encourage you to do. Here's some of the jars of oil that you can engage in. Um, I encourage you, if you are interested in the complete list that I put together, you can go to centralcity.co slash slavery. It includes a variety of action steps, as well as some articles that I referenced, uh, the video that I referenced, et cetera, where you can learn more about this. Uh, here are just some of the ones that are listed on the website. Here's the first thing that I encourage you to do. Go to slaveryfootprint. It's actually slaveryfootprint.org. So that's, that's my mistake there. But the link is on that other link. So, you know, my bad. But slaveryfootprint.org and uh, fill it out. Uh, spend some time with it. Wrestle with it. Uh, the second thing that people recommend is to buy fair trade. Uh, nothing new there. You've probably heard of it. But a lot of fair trade, and not all fair trade is equal, I understand. But a lot of it is intentionally designed to make sure that the supply chains don't involve child labor, forced labor, et cetera. So there's a, a, a lot of uh, ways in which you can buy fair trade. I was, I was excited uh, this week as I was preaching on this sermon. I had to go buy new jeans. So you can imagine how that felt. Um, but I found some at Target that were... Uh, fair trade certified factory made jeans. And uh, there's actually some really great jean companies, uh, some popular ones that you know about. I think Levi's might be one of them. But there's a variety of companies where you can buy and, and, and they, they, are, they have transparent supply lines um, where you can get clothes and home goods um, that uh, um, uh, don't uh, hurt other people. So buy fair trade. The, the next one that I saw on this list was reuse and recycle. I saw a quote recently about the environment. They said, the most environmentally friendly purchase you can make is the one you don't make, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, we talk about environmentally friendly purchases. The best one that you can purchase is one that you don't purchase. And so the more we can reuse and the more we can recycle and just have less, the, the better off all around. Like it's going to decrease demand overall. And it's, the same is true for fair trade. The most equitable purchase that you can make is the one you don't make. Um, so what can you do to reuse or recycle? The next one is to buy survivor-made goods. There's a number of websites. And I love this one because this fits into the scripture passage. You know, he started with what the widow had and then used it um, and empowered the widow in that. And so if you could actually purchase something that was made by somebody who survived human trafficking or, or bonded labor, like that's like that's an extra level of empowered. So there's a few links to some websites where you can buy um, bags and shoes and things like that. Um, one of the things that I add to the list is, of course, prayer. Not just, um, you know, I, I, I want to caveat that with saying that when, when the woman came and cried out to Elisha, Elisha did not respond, how can I pray for you? Right, he said, how can I help you? And those are different things. But I'm not gonna at the same time minimize the power of prayer and the way in which it transforms us. The way in which we take that overwhelming, when I feel, oh, this is so overwhelming, I don't even know what to do with these types of problems, and we sit with them, and we take them to God, and we say, God, what would you have me do? What would you have me do? So what I want to do is, is spend a few moments in prayer. And this prayer is also available on the website. And it will involve me uh, reading a, a, a short paragraph. Uh, this prayer is uh, uh, taken from a, a, a UK ministry called Together in Sussex. And um, I found it to be very meaningful, the words that they chose. Um, but after I've read the, the paragraph, the prayer, there will be an opportunity for you to say, Lord, may it be so. So let's practice that. Lord, may it be so.
One more time. Good. Let us pray. Dear Lord, just as you helped Moses and Aaron as they spoke boldly to Pharaoh on behalf of the Hebrew slaves in Egypt, help us speak up for modern slaves around the world. Lord, may it be so. Lord, you are a strong tower and a mighty fortress. Help your rescued children feel safe and begin to heal. Protect them from those who seek to harm them. Lord, may it be so. Lord, most of us hearing this prayer will never experience the kind of extreme poverty that millions of people live with every day. Help us to be understanding and compassionate toward their needs. Help us to love them in the way that you love them. Give us the will to make things better. Lord, may it be so. Lord, your word shows that you bring new joy and hope where previously there was only shame and fear. We ask this for our sisters and brothers who desperately need to accept that they can be made new. Lord, may it be so. And Lord, you demand justice for those who have been wronged. Give strength to those who investigate and prosecute traffickers. Encourage them when they are weary. Give courage to survivors when they are asked to testify against their former captors. Lord, may it be so. And it's in your son's holy name, Jesus, the one who took on flesh, the one who was beaten, the one who was shamed, and the one who found new life and offers new life to us, we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Will you please stand for our closing song?